0: Well, you've probably heard the story of the gingerbread man and you probably uh, know that it doesn't usually end like that, does it? Um, Well, you remember how it goes. A hero jumps through the open window and escapes and thinks that he's going to make good his escape uh, as he outruns a pig and a cow and uh, probably other animals and the old woman and her husband as well. But then he has to cross a river uh, which he's scared of, and a wily fox offers to take him across on his head, which he does. And the gingerbread man thinks that he's escaped only to get to the other side, and the fox eats him. Well, this version of the story that we just said is what saw is what we call a fractured fairy tale. Uh, it puts a twist in the story, uh, it's a parody of the real story. Judges 19 to 21, we just had 19 read to us, is a strange dark story and it's like a fractured fairy tale. It's a parody of what we expect. Instead of there being good guys and bad guys, uh, even the people that we expect to be heroes end up being twisted. Wrong follows right and evil darkens even the good that they do. In this final episode of Judges, Israel did what they wanted because they had no king. They tried to make things right in their own eyes. But as I just said, everything they did was twisted. They seem to exercise hospitality, which welcomes the outsider and the vulnerable, but that gets twisted to possessiveness and treating people as property. They seem to want to see justice done, but that gets twisted to become a thirst for vengeance. And they seem to want to make things right in the end, but that gets twisted into a quick fix of writing a wrong with another wrong. By the end, it becomes obvious that Israel couldn't fix themselves. And Israel's story is our story as well, because we also twist even the best things, that we do so that they become corrupted we need what israel needed a king who writes our wrongs that we can't fix ourselves now let's pray friends as we come to the word of god father we pray that as we hear this very dark story that's hard to listen to uh, that's confronting uh, that that In some ways, we just don't know what to do with it. Father, we pray that your spirit would take this story and show us um, how it applies to us, uh, what we are to make of it. We pray that you would challenge us, uh, shake us up where you need to shake us up, uh, and even that you would encourage us through it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've got three points uh, this morning. Uh, First one how Israel twisted hospitality, how they twisted justice, and then thirdly, how they twisted solutions uh, to their their mess. So first point, twisted hospitality. Hospitality may seem uh, a, a bit of a surprising way to describe what we just had read to us in chapter 19. But the events of that chapter really revolve around two stories of people welcoming people into their house. Hospitality in the Old Testament represented more than just giving friends a nice meal and looking after them. It represented a deep-seated belief in the importance of looking after strangers, and especially those in need of protection and shelter. And they were often people like foreigners and the weakest and most vulnerable in their society. Practising hospitality was vital because it reflected God's heart of protecting the vulnerable. The widow, the orphan, women, people who most needed protection. Most of our focus today will be on chapter 19. We're going to look at the three main characters of this story. Firstly, the Levite, then the old man, uh, who takes them in in Sodom and then the city of, uh, sorry, not Sodom, um, uh, Gibeah and then the city of uh, Gibeah uh, itself. Firstly, the Levite and his property. So as we just had read to us, the Levite takes a wife, a concubine. Straight away, we see that something's not quite right. Whenever men took concubines in the Old Testament, we know that it means trouble. Concubines were a kind of second-class wife. They were against God's plan for one man having one wife. And whenever they took concubines, it spelt trouble. The Levite was taking this woman into his home, a form of hospitality. He was making a pledge to look after her and provide for her as his wife. But there's something not right, not quite right with a concubine either. Notice that she's unfaithful to him and runs away to her father's house. And so the Levite goes back to get her. Verse 3, then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. Sounds good, right? He wants to be reconciled to her. But notice how long it takes him to do that. Verse verse 2, she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. Four months he waits before he goes to get her back. Is that perhaps an indication that actually she didn't mean all that much to him after all? Well, her father welcomes the Levite in as he goes goes back to get her and shows him generous hospitality, the way things were meant to be done. Uh, The Levite stays there a few days. The, the, um, The father wants him to stay longer, but he insists on leaving with his concubine. But notice in the interaction between the Levite and the father, neither of them ask what the woman wants to do. neither of them ask if she's willing to go back to her husband. Again, perhaps a sign that who she is as a person doesn't much matter. Perhaps she is really not much more to him than his property, well, they travelled towards the city of Gibeah. The Levite rejects his servant's suggestion to stay uh, in Jebus, which became Jerusalem. And at that time, it was, a, it was a Canaanite city, a pagan city. So the Levite wants to stay with God's people in Israel. It was deeply ironic that this turned out, this decision to stay in Gibeah, a city in, uh, belonging to the tribe of Benjamin in Israel, Deeply ironic that this turned out to be an awful decision. As we heard in our reading, the Levite and his wife are sitting in the public square at Gibeah when an old man comes in after work and takes them in to his house. The men of the city get wind that these outsiders have come to town and they bang on the old man's door. Bring out the man who's staying with you. We want to have sex with him. The man rightly refuses this shocking demand. Instead, he offers his own daughter and the concubine. But the men wouldn't listen to him. And now the Levite takes action. Listen to what he says. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. So much for his duty to protect his wife. He knew full well what the men of Gibeah were going to do to her. Then what does he do? He turns in for a good night's sleep, completely untroubled in his conscience. Then when he gets up in the morning, he opens the door and this is what he finds, verse 27. There was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And immediately he takes her in his arms and carries her inside to bind her wounds. No. Instead he says to her, verse 28... Get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. Cold, callous, without an ounce of compassion. And then what he does next is just spine chilling. Verse 29. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and send her throughout all the territory of Israel. We don't even know if she was dead at this point before he cuts her up. But assuming that she was, his final gruesome act robs his wife of all dignity and personhood as she's not even allowed a proper burial, something that was seen as enormously important for an Israelite. In all this, the Levite shows that his wife is nothing more than a possession to him, a piece of property that he uses in the most cowardly way to buy his own protection. He fails miserably as a husband and twisted his duty to provide hospitality to protect a vulnerable woman. Second character in the story, the old man. He starts out well enough. Remember that he fulfills his duty of hospitality to the Levite and his concubine. Uh, He takes them into his house. Uh, They are in a vulnerable position because they're sitting in this public square in a a city that they they know no one. Uh, They're vulnerable. No one takes them in until the old man comes along. When the wicked men of the city bang on his door it looks like he's going to continue to do the right thing. He refuses to hand the levite over to the mob. Verse 23. No my brothers do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house do not do this vile thing. I am going to fulfill my duty of hospitality. But then get things get twisted. Instead of offering the same protection to everyone under his roof, he's willing to throw his own daughter and the concubine to the sharks. Verse 24 Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out to you. Violate them and do to them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do, not do this outrageous thing. What a twisted sense of doing what's right. What a twisted sense of hospitality. He offers half a welcome mat by protecting the man, the Levite. But he's willing to sacrifice his own flesh and blood and the man's wife. Two women, the weakest, most vulnerable, the ones needing most protection. Then thirdly, we have the men of Gibeah. The description of them is a bit more straightforward. More black and white, or should we say really just desperately black. They've fallen pretty much as low as it's possible to go. It's significant that when the Levite and his wife come to Gibeah, no one takes them in. A little detail, but an important one. There was a failure of their basic duty of care to look after the outsider, the weak and the vulnerable. But of course it gets worse, doesn't it? When the visitors are taken in by the old man, they want to have sex with the Levite, but when offered the defenceless woman, they take her and treat her in the most breathtakingly despicable way. Now you may notice um, that this story is very similar to another story back in Genesis 19. Do you remember Sodom? God sends angels to stay with Lot And the same thing happens. The men of the city demanded to have sex with the visitors. Uh, On that occasion, God ends up destroying the city for its wickedness. And from that point onwards, Sodom becomes kind of a byword for the pit of wickedness. Uh, It's no accident that this story of Gibeah is so similar. The message is that at least this portion of Israel... God's people has fallen so low that they are as evil as the most wicked pagan people in the Old Testament. Now when we read this story, it's not only hard to listen to, but hard to work out what to do with it, isn't it? It's just too black to connect with. It's too hard to put ourselves in the story. Or is it? I want to suggest, friends, that the twisted actions of the Levite and the old man are actually something that we are all capable of. I don't mean that we're in danger of going out and cutting our wives or husbands up, but we are all capable of twisting even our good actions and motivations that we have. The very first scene sets the tone for everything else that follows in these chapters. In those days, there was no king in Israel. As we've seen before in Judges, that's a kind of shorthand for saying that Israel had rejected their true king, God. As a result, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The Levite, the old man, the people of Gibeah, they all acted like they did because God was no longer their king. They did as they saw fit. They paid lip service to God, perhaps, but it was a skin-deep religion. And I want to suggest that it's easy for us to also take on skin-deep religion while becoming our own kings and queens. And we see in chapter 19 a good diagnostic for whether we're doing that or not. As we've seen, Israel had lost its heart to show hospitality, meaning they've lost their concern to protect the weak and the vulnerable. It may not seem the most obvious way to take our spiritual pulse, but actually it's a really good indicator of how much we are allowing Jesus to be king of our lives, both as a church and as individuals. And that is, how concerned are we For the most vulnerable? How concerned are we for the most vulnerable? We haven't got time unfortunately to really unpack that now, but here are three groups of people we should be taking real steps to look after. One, the poor. People like single mums. People who increasingly in this economic environment can't afford housing. Secondly, refugees and asylum seekers. Thirdly, unborn children. All three groups that as a society we've failed to protect and look after. As God's people we should be known for our hospitality, our protection of those whose society has cast aside. Well, that was a long first point. Don't worry, we're going to move much more quickly through the other points. The second point is twisted justice. We see Israel respond to what happened in Gibeah with a twisted justice. I'm just going to quickly summarise what happens in chapter 20 because we haven't got time to look at it in detail. But just quickly, the story is that Israel are shocked, rightly, rightly. Uh, when a body part of the concubines arrives in the mail for each of the tribes. Such a thing has never happened in Israel since we came out of Egypt, they say. It's actually unclear whether the people are more shocked by what the Levite did or what Gibeah did. It's it's one of those ambiguities that's that's set up in the text. Perhaps it's both. And so all the other 11 tribes, besides Benjamin, remember Gibeah is from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, all the other 11 tribes gather together. Um, Israel decides that Gibeah has to be punished and they decide to attack the city. Then they send a demand to the tribe of Benjamin. They say, uh, give up these these perpetrators of this, this crime, but tragically Benjamin refuses. Blood is thicker than justice. And so things escalate into a civil war. Eleven tribes against one tribe, against Benjamin. It should have been a walk in the park for Israel. Eleven tribes against one. But for two days, Israel is defeated by Benjamin. Eventually, though, on day three, Israel routs Benjamin and only 600 men escape. But then, having defeated Benjamin... Israel turns back and wipes out what remains of the tribe. Let's pick it up in chapter 20, verse 48. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Now, if you're thinking that this sounds a bit over the top as far as retribution goes, you would be right. Israel goes way beyond just seeking justice, just punishing the perpetrators from Gibeah and those who supported them. It's not actually stated, but it seems that women and children, as well as animals, were all targeted in the reprisals. This wasn't justice, this was genocide. And we see it again in chapter 21. This time it's not against Benjamin, but a town in the territory of Manasseh. It turns out for some unknown reason that a town called Jabesh Gilead failed to answer the call when all Israel was told to come out against Benjamin. This is what the fighting men of Israel were told to do, 21.10. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword. Also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that is laid with a male, you shall devote to destruction. Sound over the top again? If anyone should have been punished, it would have been the men for refusing to gather with the rest of Israel. But even that would have been pretty dubious. But to wipe out the whole town, that's not justice. That was a killing rampage. Israel's thirst for blood wasn't a concern for justice. It was what people do when they have no king. They do what is right in their own eyes. Justice so easily becomes twisted into a desire for retribution and vengeance. And friends, this is a problem for us as well. When we lose God's perspective on justice, making things right... It so easily becomes twisted to be get about getting even, getting back at people. Israel started out well enough. It, was really, it really wasn't an appropriate and necessary response to see justice done against the men of Gibeah. And often for us too, um, I'm aware of a number of broken relationships uh, here at church. Uh, where someone said or done something that is hurtful or wrong. Uh, A genuine wrong is committed. But too often we respond not out of a desire for reconciliation, but we respond out of our hurt. And instead of doing what Jesus says to do, to go to our brother or sister, talk to them directly about it, we go behind their backs and we gossip to someone else. Instead of looking for restoration of the friendship, too often we pretty much cut off the relationship. Instead of looking for forgiveness, we harbour resentment. That's not God's way. That's the world's way. That's the way Israel responded. They became just like the nations around them. And we can so easily do what is right in our own eyes. We believe in God, but often we behave like we have no king. So Israel twisted justice like they twisted hospitality. And then thirdly, they came up with twisted solutions to make things right. We read in chapter 21 that Israel grieved that Benjamin had basically been cut off from Israel. They had compassion on the remnant that was left behind. This is a good thing. Despite the fact that they've gone on a killing rampage against Benjamin, now it seems that they genuinely wanted to see the tribe restored. And there's a pressing problem that's been created by the war. A problem that uh, was created by Israel's own doing, by the way. Israel had wiped out all the young women of Benjamin. Benjamin. Benjamin, remember, there, uh, still had 600 fighting men who survived. They needed to find wives to rebuild their tribe. And then there's another reason for this lack of eligible women. 21.7, what shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. So they've promised not to give away their own women. So the problem is, where are these women going to come from? Solution number one. Someone suddenly remembers that there was a town who refused the call of duty to fight against Benjamin. Remember Jabesh Gilead that we looked at a moment ago? It becomes evident from the context that the real reason for the genocide against Jabesh Gilead wasn't a sense of justice at all, but it was pure pragmatism. The very next verse after they ask how are we going to find wives for the Benjamites, bingo, they suddenly remembered the need to wipe out the men of Jabesh Gilead. And then all the unmarried women were conveniently taken as loot to contribute to the noble cause of finding wives for the Benjamites. Verse 21, verse 12, sorry. And they found among the inhabitants of jabesh gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh. They became the prize in a merry game of choose your wife for Benjamin. Wiping out jabesh gilead in a twisted sense of justice would have been bad enough, but when it was done out of a cynical act of pure pragmatism, a quick fix to free up some wives... Well, that was beyond despicable. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But even after that, the problem wasn't fixed. There were only 400 women for Jabesh Gilead. 600 Benjamites needed a wife. There was still a deficit, right? So, solution two. The elders put their heads together and remember... Someone remembers a festival at a place called Shiloh. There are going to be young women here dancing. uh, They put their heads together and this is a solution they come up with. And they commanded the people of Benjamin saying, go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin." We've got to right this wrong, fellows of the Benjamites, without uh, being left without wives. So we'll kidnap these unsuspecting women and carry them off against their will. Oh, yeah, and it's just possible that their fathers and brothers will object to the plan. If that's the case, say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give uh, give them to them else you would now be guilty. Come on, fellas, play along here. We're doing the right thing, you know, by no one actually giving these women away. We're not breaking our vow, Uh, so uh, just play along. Israel's solution was to right the wrong of Benjamin, having no wives, with a wicked, pragmatic plan. A quick fix, doing what was right in their own eyes by committing a terrible wrong once again, against some of the weakest and most vulnerable people in that society, young women. There's no editorial comment uh, on the rightness or wrongness of the kidnapping, but then a couple of verses later, the very last uh, verse of the book says, in those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And really, that's all that needs to be said. The book of Judges ends with its depressing story that is the natural result of people who abandon the king of the universe and do what's right for themselves, what's cowardly, self-protective and pragmatic. And if that really was the final word on where Israel ended up, it would be pretty bleak, wouldn't it? But the Bible is bigger than Judges. And even these final few verses in this book, contains a little hint of hope. And that's what we're going to finish up with after we have a song. Well, we've seen that Israel ended up in a hopeless place, unable to do what is right. Even the heroes of these chapters are anti-heroes. Everything Israel did was twisted. But even in the midst of that, there's a tiny glimmer of hope, as I said before. Firstly, the tribe of Benjamin uh, is brought back from the brink of destruction. Have a look at verse 23, chapter 21. After they got their wives, they, the Benjamites, went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived lived in them. And then the rest of the tribes of Israel went back home. Verse 24, and the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. The emphasis on tribe, family, inheritance, these are things given to them by God. Uh, The things he promised firstly to Abraham, then to Moses, remember, Um, back in Deuteronomy, um, that God promised them the promised land. Uh, as their inheritance. The fact that they now return to them and return from near chaos uh, back to normal life, near normal life anyway, that's God's work. The fact that he continued to be with them. He didn't abandon them, though they deserved it. And we know that God continued to be with his people. In those days it ends up, Israel had no king. But the king would come, and we just sang about him, didn't we? He came and lived with his people. He came to die for them. He came to claim his inheritance. Not only the people of Israel, but every tribe and nation on earth. The judges ultimately failed to save their people. But the king has done what the judges could not do. And in saving us, Jesus has also dealt with our twisted, sinful nature. More than that, bit by bit, we are being shaped to become more like him. It won't come completely in this life, but we can look forward to a time when everything crooked and twisted in us will be made straight. Where we share the king's heart for hospitality, protecting the vulnerable, where we hunger and thirst for justice and share in his project of making things right, not just in our own eyes, but as God intended things to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for even this difficult part of your word, the end of the book of Judges. Thank you, Father, that it reminds us that we can't put our hope in ourselves. We can't put our hope in a human judge or a human king. But thank you that you have provided for our need in providing us just the king that we need, King Jesus. Father, we ask as we acknowledge the twistedness in ourselves, even our right motives, we're prone to twist and pervert. Father, may that drive us to our King. May it show us our need uh, for Him to save us, to deliver us from ourselves, and to make us into the people that we are meant to be. Amen.